Welcome to Felon, a true crime podcast. Episode 3, Harry Crawford, the man with the secret. Man is not what he thinks he is. He is what he hides. Andre Malraux. Tuesday, the 2nd of October, 1917. The smell of burnt eucalypt branches lingered in the air. In a bush clearing, the silent remnants of a bonfire. Days before, it had raged. A makeshift furnace to discard yet another secret. Fueled by branch after branch, it had blazed and even spread, travelling quite a distance from its original location, leaving a scorched black trail and finally subsiding. A young engineer's assistant, travelling on a nearby trail, was the first to notice the fire's aftermath. Curious, like most young boys are, he approached to have a closer look. He drew nearer, unaware that he was about to make a shocking discovery. In the smouldering remains of branches and ash lay a charred human body. The body was found in a popular picnic area in Lane Cove National Park, which is around 15 kilometres northwest of Sydney, Australia. In 1917, it was a popular destination for picnickers, but there was also a more sinister and unsavoury side to the area. Vagrants had set up makeshift shelters in caves and tents. It was frequented by people who were homeless, mentally unstable and often under the influence of alcohol. Police were quickly alerted of the discovery and they made their way to examine the scene. Sergeant Mays and Constable Walsh of Chatswood Police Station are documented as attending. Chatswood is an adjoining suburb to Lane Cove. Mays and Walsh arrived to view a body that was burned beyond recognition, to the point that on one side of the chest the heart and lungs were visible. Yet despite the extreme disfigurement, it appeared to be a woman. A set of false teeth were found in the ashes. A lock of hair survived the flames. A small brooch was found close by, and a fairly ordinary diamond ring was still on the hand of the body. Not too far from the body, police discovered a whiskey flagon a whiskey flask containing kerosene, an enamel mug, a picnic basket, and a hat pin. When the body was moved, a greenstone pendant on a chain, two metal buttons, and some loose false teeth were found. A pair of shoes that had undergone repairs to the soles were also found, police hoping they would offer something a bit more unique to assist in identifying the body. A number of theories were considered, one of which involved the possibility of suicide. Accidental death by falling into the fire was also considered. The source of these theories being fueled by the fact that there was a number of vagrants living in the area, and that a strange lady had been seen frequenting that particular location. The shoes, being the most unique item found near the body, were illustrated and distributed by the media in hopes someone would recognise something and in turn identify the unnamed woman. But no one came forward.
After a coronial inquest, the findings were summarised as the following. The said woman, name unknown, was found dead in the bush of Mowbray Road, Lane Cove, in the district of Sydney, on the 2nd of October, 1917, with certain marks of violence appearing upon her body. And I further find that she died on about the 1st of October, 1917, at the same place, from the effects of burns caused through her clothing catching fire, but whether accidentally or otherwise, the evidence adduced does not enable me to say. The unidentified woman was buried in an unmarked grave in Rookwood Cemetery, about 15 kilometres south from where she was found. The numerous items that were collected at the scene were gathered into a box and put into storage in Chatswood Police Station. Harry Leo Crawford was born in 1875. His family had made their way to Wellington, New Zealand in 1877 and he spent his time there until his teens. When Harry was a teenager, he had left home and he spent time as a cabin boy aboard a ship traveling throughout the Pacific Islands before permanently stepping back onto land in Newcastle, Australia, a city north of Sydney. He worked in a series of manual jobs in abattoirs, pubs and factories. In 1912, 37-year-old Harry Crawford was employed by a Dr. G.R.C. Clark in Warunga, a suburb in Sydney's north, as a general hand and sulky driver for the doctor, sulkies being a two-wheeled cart towed by horses. Harry was a reliable, strong worker and was good with horses. Dr. Clark considered him a great asset to his lodgings. It was while working here that he met Dr. Clark's housekeeper, Annie Burkett. Annie was a widow. Her husband had passed several years prior, and so she needed the work to provide for her 13-year-old son, coincidentally also named Harry. Harry and Annie became interested in each other very soon after meeting, and began to spend time with each other and Annie's son away from their place of employment. They went on sulky rides to the circus and picnics, enjoying each other's company as friends all the while, both hoping it would lead to more. It soon did. And after their brief courtship, the two were married on the 19th of February, 1913. Up until this point, Harry had lived a fairly rugged life. During his time in the factories, he had hung around a fairly unsavory bunch of characters that he called friends. He swore, he drank, and he brawled and he'd also enjoyed the company of quite a number of women. But in Annie he could see a hope for something better, and he stepped into what he saw as a bright new future with her. The three lived together in Balmain, a suburb in the inner west of Sydney. During their courtship, Annie had set up a shop with some money she inherited from her previous husband, selling confectionery and so Harry ran the shop with her, playing father to her son, Harry Jr. Young Harry did not approve of his new father, but at 13, he was too young to add any weight to the decision. Soon into their marriage, Harry Crawford started to slip into his old ways. 
He started drinking heavily and displaying another side that Annie hadn't seen before. It appeared that Harry was not the man that Annie thought he was. To add to this, Harry had also reluctantly told Annie that he had a daughter conceived in a drunken encounter 16 years prior. This added pressure to their marriage, and when his daughter came to live with them, Harry's drinking escalated and the union started to deteriorate. To Harry, his daughter Josephine was the link to a period of time he would rather forget. She carried with her a secret that would threaten to destroy his relationship with Annie if it was ever uncovered. Harry and Annie teetered on the edge of divorce and they separated for a period of time, Annie selling the business and moving in with her sister. But Harry couldn't let the love of his life slip away. He begged for another chance and the two moved in together again in a house in Dremoyne, a suburb not far from Balmain. Annie with her son Harry and Harry with his daughter Josephine once again set up house and began living as a family. Harry, with the promise that he would reform his behaviour, started working again in factories and hotels. He was no stranger to manual labour, and he enjoyed the physical side of it, and the usual banter with the other men that accompanied it. Josephine and Harry didn't have the best relationship. He had contact with her over the years while she was growing up, as she had been placed in the care of family friends of her mother. On the rare occasions Harry did visit, he was drunk and became a ritual to direct a barrage of insults to Josephine's guardians. Josephine had also had a child of her own at the young age of 16, but due to a heart defect, the baby had not lived past three months. It was following this that Harry had broken the news to Annie about Josephine's existence because he decided it would be best for her to come and live with him. The only condition that Harry had was that Josephine could never utter a word about his past or her birth mother. But tension again started to swell in the household. Josephine was living a wild lifestyle, often visiting the party district of King's Cross in the city. Annie concerned that Josephine's influence would rub off on her son Harry became frustrated with her husband's unwillingness to lay ground rules for the girl. She began to argue with Josephine. Harry was dragged into these arguments. Around this time, Harry started to drink heavily. He was violent and abusive to his family, again showing below his loving surface there was a man Annie didn't really know. At the peak of this hostility in the family, Josephine found refuge in a neighbor's friendship. It was during a visit to this friend that Josephine fueled by a resentment to her father, shared a secret about her birth mother. This secret would soon unravel the last threads of Harry and Annie's relationship. As most rumors do, it traveled the neighborhood. Josephine had hoped a flippant revelation would not be taken seriously, but it was. The news was far too shocking to be swept under the carpet. In the back of her mind, Josephine knew it. As time passed, Annie would hear the news from a friend, and it would change everything. What Annie heard was unbelievable, yet as she reflected on her time with Harry, it fell into place. Harry was not the man she thought he was, 
and this confirmed it. She felt sick. After stewing on the news for some time, she confronted him. This was to be the beginning of the end. Annie, trying to process the magnitude of her discovery, penned the following letter to her sister. I have something I want to tell you. I found out something queer about Harry. I don't know what to do, but I'll tell you about it when I see you and get your advice. Harry's true identity had come into question. He tried to offer a reasonable explanation to Annie, but it was more than she could handle. As time passed, she could not accept him and pushed him further away, all the while trying to work out a way to escape the situation. In 1917, after just under five years of marriage, the two planned a day trip to the nearby Lane Cove Park for a picnic. It is believed that it was Annie's intention to express her desire to leave him. Harry, on the other hand, saw it as a last-ditch attempt to win her back. As the two made their intentions known to each other, it was soon obvious that they were now worlds apart. Their discussion on the day of the picnic at Lane Cove escalated to an argument, both strongly voicing their opinion, and both not wanting to hear the others, especially Harry. He did not handle the news that Annie wanted to leave him very well. On the same weekend as their picnic, young Harry and his son had been away in Collaroy, a coastal suburb in northern Sydney. Harry arrived home on the 1st of October 1917. Stepping in the door, he found an emotional and drunk stepfather. Harry Sr. was seated at the table with a bottle of whiskey. When young Harry asked the whereabouts of his mother, Harry Sr. replied, I don't know. Then, after some deliberation, he added, She went away with friends to stay with Mrs. Murray in North Sydney. Young Harry, happy with this explanation, went about his daily business. His mother never returned home. As time went on, Harry stopped asking about his mother, assuming that she had run away following the breakdown of her marriage with his stepfather. With Josephine living an independent life, Harry Crawford and Harry Jr. moved into a new home, lodging with a German couple in Woolloomooloo, an inner city eastern suburb of Sydney, not too far from the Sydney Opera House. The two lived here with the German couple for around six weeks, before Harry Sr. became tired of looking after the boy and palmed him off to a family friend, a Marcella Bombolini, who took the young boy under her wing. With Annie Burkett now out of his life, Harry Crawford slipped back into his old lifestyle, moving from boarding house to boarding house and working in a number of labouring jobs, all the while drinking heavily. It was while working in a hotel in the year 1919, he would meet the next love of his life, Elizabeth King Allison, known by her friends as Lizzie. Following the loss of his wife Annie, Crawford had slipped into a depressive state and he had stopped taking care of his appearance. But with his newfound interest in Lizzie, an office worker at the hotel he was working at, he thought he should tidy up his act. He bought a suit, 
slowed down his drinking habits, and tried his best to reform once again. As with Annie, Crawford hit it off with Lizzie quite quickly, and the two were married on the 29th of September, 1919, and they began a new life together in a home in Stanmore, an inner western suburb. It was while working at the Empire Hotel that Crawford had a chance encounter with his stepson, Harry Burkett. The two exchanged pleasantries and planned to meet up again, but Harry Sr. stood him up, Crawford not wanting Lizzie to hear about his prior marriage and children. It was during this period of time that Harry Burkett and his son had reconnected with his aunt and his sister, Lily. Lily was surprised because she had been under the impression that when Annie had left Harry, that she had taken young Harry with her. She was unaware that Annie had disappeared, and with the recent news that no one had heard from her since her disappearance in October of 1917, she held grim fears for her well-being. In light of letters she had received from Annie around that period of time, her suspicions were directed at Crawford. Harry Burkett also shed new light on the situation. He recalled a time following the disappearance of his mother when Harry Sr. had started to act strange. When pressed by neighbours about the whereabouts of Annie, he would say she had run off with another man or that he had struck her and she took off on him. Even more strange, while Harry Crawford and young Harry were living with the German couple, he started taking young Harry out on peculiar outings. On one occasion, during a storm, he took him to a bushland with a shovel and made him dig a grave-sized hole. When the hole was completed, Crawford became emotional and threw the spade into the bushes, dragging the boy abruptly back home with him. Young Harry also recounted to his aunt that Crawford had taken him to a lookout point, known to be commonly used for suicide. Crawford had stepped out near the edge and beckoned the young boy to join him. Young Harry refused, all the while Crawford tried to coax him near the edge. As he replayed the scenes in his mind, it all started to add up with the hindsight that he now had. Another story also played on Harry Jr's mind. He recalled a time when Harry Sr, who was illiterate, asked him to read an article that featured an illustration of a pair of women's shoes. It discussed the body being found burned in Lane Cove Park and stated that the shoes were a key piece of evidence. He had not thought much of it at the time, but now it carried a heavy implication. In May 1920, Harry and Lily visited the Criminal Investigation Branch in Sydney Central Police Station. During an interview with Detective Sergeant Stuart Robson, they passed on all the information that they had been reflecting on in relation to the disappearance of their beloved Annie. Following up on this information, the detective contacted the Chatswood Police Station with a request for evidence that had been collected at the scene of the fire in the Lane Cove Park. Two weeks passed and Lily and Harry again attended the CIB office. This time Robson had a box. As he removed the items, their hearts sank. A small brooch, a diamond ring, a whiskey flagon, a whiskey flask, an enamel mug, a picnic basket, a hat pin, a greenstone pendant on a chain, two metal buttons, and finally a pair of shoes. 
on which the soles had been repaired. There was more than enough items for Harry to confirm that these had belonged to his mother. He recognised the shoes and the repaired soles were definitely the handiwork of his stepfather. Armed with this damning information, police made their way to the Empire Hotel with Harry Crawford in their sights. Harry was taken into custody and pressed about his past and his marriage to Annie Burkett. He maintained the claim that until he married Lizzie Ellison, he had been a single man all his life. But he was notified by the police that they had in their possession statements from both Annie's son and her sister. It was clear that Crawford had a number of skeletons in his closet. One secret in particular had haunted him his whole life. A secret that his daughter Josephine had relayed to a neighbour. A secret that a neighbour had relayed to Annie, which had spiralled their relationship beyond repair. A secret that Harry Jr. had been informed of while living with a family friend of Crawford's. A secret that Harry Jr. and Lily shared with Detective Robson in their interview with him two weeks prior. And with the knowledge of this secret, Robson was about to reveal the true identity of Harry Crawford, and with it, a motive for the murder of Annie Burkett on the day of their picnic in 1917. Following being questioned by police, and learning what they knew about him, Crawford realised it would be quite likely he was going to jail. Harry Crawford quizzed Robson nervously with the question, What do they do to prisoners when they first go in? Give them a bath, of course, replied Robson. Knowing that this would be a concern of Crawford's, based on the knowledge he had of his true identity. Then came the whispered phrase from Crawford. Then you better take me to the women's section. I'm a woman. In his black and white, 1920 mugshot, Crawford stands dressed in a suit and tie. He looks like a typical man of the era. A bit rough around the edges, but he had been through a life of hard labour. There is nothing about the image that would suggest that he is biologically a woman. Yet, a search into his past by authorities, and a physical examination, would reveal that Crawford was in fact, a woman. Harry Leo Crawford was born in Italy as a female. Her parents naming her Eugenia Fellini. We will continue her story next episode on Felon True Crime Podcast.